Hello and welcome to Connected by Life. I'm your host, Sean Paul Harrison. Connected by Life was created to have engaging conversations about important topics that impact physicians and our clinical stakeholders in regards to organ and tissue donation and transplantation. I'm talking to Dr. Lori Greer, who's a critical care pulmonologist at Oshner LSU Health in Shreveport. I've known her for over 20 years, and she is very selfless and always very passionate about her patients, families, and the importance of donation. Dr. Greer and I are going to discuss the physician's impact within the donation process. Before we get into, you know, some of the different topics that we're going to discuss today, you know, I know that you have over 35 years of experience, and uh, I just wanted you to share a little bit with the audience, a little bit about yourself and your current role at Oshner LSU Health. Absolutely, and thanks for pointing out how many years I've been doing that. I'm sure the audience <laughs> really, really needed that information. Well, you started when you were 10, but, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, currently I'm a professor of medicine, emergency medicine, anesthesiology, OMFS, and OBGYN at LSU Health in Shreveport. We are we partner with Oshner LSU in Shreveport, where I serve as a chief quality officer uh, for that institution. In addition to that, I have lots of roles, uh, including director of critical care medicine for the medical intensive care unit. Um, currently, the assistant uh, program director of Critical Care Medicine Fellowship, Medical Director of, like I said, the Medical Intensive Care Unit, uh, Respiratory Care Services, Vascular Access Team, the uh, Rapid Response Team, et cetera. I tell people I used to be 5'10", but with all these hats, I'm down to about 5'3". <laughs> <at this> point. <laughs> but I still look up to you. That's the difference. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, listen, in, in explaining all those things, it's very humbling because it feels like I have done nothing in life. <laughs> you know, one of the things I will say is, and I don't need just speak for myself, but one of the things that I first learned about you is your just commitment and just being an advocate for all of your patients and families. So I commend you on all the things that you're doing, not only for those patients and families, but also with the staff that you worked on and who's looking up to you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's been a long journey and um, I hope to keep going for a while longer, teaching as many young physicians as possible and being there for my patients and to support my nursing staff as well. We're going to get into education. Um, probably a little bit down the line, but one of the things that I also wanted to mention here too in talking about that advocacy is you being such a leader and advocate for families and patients that have an opportunity to be a life-saving organ donor. Can you tell me in all of those years, is there something specific that made that connection to you that you remember you know, so, so long ago. Absolutely. Um, as a matter of fact, when you asked me that a little while ago, I started thinking about where my desire to help patients who needed an organ transplant and to help families who were put in the situation to decide whether or not they wanted to donate their loved ones organs to help someone else. And it really started out, it's funny, I started my fellowship uh, for critical care on July 1st of 1990. I had a phone call from my program director at the time on June 30th of 1990, asking me how it started day early and that we were going to perform the second uh, cardiac transplant in Shreveport to ever be done on that day. And he wanted to know if I would start early and go help take care of that patient post-op. 
And it was through that that I actually did the two years of my critical care fellowship taking care of those patients and actually did two years in private practice working with patients that were pre in the hospital waiting for a heart transplant and patients that were post-transplant to take care of them. I think it was at that point I really found my passion for organ donation. Well, it's definitely something that you could tell has, has really been a commitment to you because, you know, I've worked with you. I know that a lot of people that have worked with you and I know that it, it is a very difficult situation because, you know, recognizing the loss of a patient, recognizing the loss for a family. Can you tell me what that experience is like in supporting families during that time? A lot of it is how the patient passed. Was it something that was expected? Was it something that they had faced similar episodes before, known someone or heard the story of someone else that was in that position? And I always tell my house staff, Read the room. You know, where is that family in a grieving process? For example, two weeks ago, we had a patient that had been in the hospital for many, many weeks, uh, secondary to a neurovascular catastrophe, and just, just never got better. And when we were getting ready to discuss removal of life support, palliative care, and all of that, giving us direction which way the family would want us to go, whether this would be a patient that would be a possible organ donor or something that they were not in the least interested in. It was it was easy to read the room. We went in and started talking to the power of attorney. You know, we started broaching when we move forward with your request for comfort care prior to doing so. And the power of attorney said, let me stop you right there. I know where you're going with this. Appreciate the opportunity, but we are not interested in organ donation. We stop it right then and there. I've had the same situation about two months ago with a patient who had a catastrophic neurologic event after being in the hospital for several weeks on the floor. It was transferred to us, and that morning we were thinking, "Oh, this is this family is going to be what we would call difficult." You know, it was such a surprise. You know, I'm not sure how they're handling it. So we sat down, the two power of attorneys, uh, the two sisters, and said, uh, you know, we apologize so much for having to have this conversation. And once we started, the first things out of their, their mouths were absolutely if it will help someone else. So you just kind of when you go in, you have to be able to read the room and know which way families are going to lean just kind of by the way they respond to your first sentence or two. And this is also in conjunction in working with the organ procurement agency, correct? When you're transitioning those conversations. Absolutely. Sometimes uh, being someone that's done this for as long as I have, I always, I always tease uh, some of the new coordinators saying, Hey, I'm one of a few physicians that are actually certified to approach families because back in the day, 30 years ago, we actually had a course, a test, et cetera, where we were uh, certified is what they called it to approach families without a coordinator. And we found that even as good as we think we are, when you add that coordinator to the mix, I think the percentage of families that are more receptive and more uh, and the number of organs that we get improves significantly with their help being there with the family to help them through this time. Something that has changed dramatically over the course of the years is just 
the collaboration between the Oregon Procurement Organization and the healthcare staff and the physicians and making sure that that communication takes place from the time that patient meets those clinical triggers and is referred so that everyone is working in conjunction of supporting the family and preserving the opportunity of donation, you know, for those that are waiting a transplant. So if you could talk a little bit about, especially for the Oregon Procurement Organization, you know, workers that are listening to a, this particular podcast is like, what, what is the importance of that communication from them to you all and making sure that we're on the same page? Well, I think, especially with some younger physicians, they don't recognize the patients that are progressing to that point. Um, you know, some, some are very obvious, you know, you have catastrophic neurologic injury, either due to trauma or due to some sort of stroke or intracranial bleed. But other things aren't quite as obvious. And especially when you talk about DCD and having the coordinator there to say, hey, Mr. So-and-so looks like if they continue to progress down this line, they may be a candidate for X or Y. And I think a lot of people don't recognize it. I think people are so focused on the healthcare aspect of it. You know, what can we do for this patient? Can we improve this patient's situation? And a lot of them don't think three steps down the line that if what we're doing doesn't work or it is a non-survivable incident that we need to start looking to see one is this patient someone who is a candidate and a lot of times the coordinators come in they point that out especially if we start early with them as opposed to hey by the way we're about to extubate this patient for comfort care and they're coming in at the very end it's very hard one to get everybody in place and number two to get the family in place for that. In addition to that, it's very helpful because we don't have access to patients that have have registered for donation. I think two important things that you brought up is one, you know, for some physicians or staff that may be a little inexperienced as far as for donation, is making sure that when that patient is deemed non-survivable, that there's not a deceleration of care and making sure that we're all preserving the opportunity of donation, you know, for that family, whether they're registered or not. The other thing is, too, is making sure that the communication is taking place about where the family's understanding is so that we don't have a premature conversation of donation that would end in a negative result. Absolutely. And I've, I've seen that aspect of it, too. I've seen where we've waited too long to approach the family because they're, they're so far into the grieving process or the disbelief aspect of the patient's care that they don't even want to hear it. They can't talk about it. And, you know, you have to, of course, always worry about that anger aspect where, oh, now you're just keeping them here an extra day or so so you can get their organs. You know, it, it's, it's something to that point as well as if we talk prematurely, the family's like, well, wait a minute, you, you, you haven't done everything that you could possibly do. You're just, you're just want their organs. So I think, I think both of those come into play big time in knowing when to start talking to families and how to talk to them. And the coordinators are unbelievable when it comes to both of those things. You know, you're talking about the, the training or education with residents and fellows. Have you encountered any that had some type of negative experience that you've had to intervene on? I wouldn't call them 
negative experiences. I think without the experience that, that the older physicians have, the more experienced physicians, I think sometimes how the the residents or the fellows word things to the family can be difficult. They need to they need to watch. And for me, I like to take, you know, I always take my fellow with me when I go talk to the family with our um, local coordinator at that time. And other times, you know, residents will ask, can we listen? And I'm like, yes, one of you to one or two of you can come in, you know, stand in the background because I don't want it to feel like you know, this poor power of attorney has to make this horrible decision or, or a wonderful decision, depending upon how they look at it. But I don't want them to feel that we're ganging up on them, per se, by having too many people in the room to have this conversation. So to me, I don't really believe in the see one, do one, teach one mm-hmm. technique when it comes to this. I believe it takes time. And as they get more experienced, I do let the fellows, if they have a relationship with the family, I do let them take the lead with the conversation. But I prefer to be in the room with them, with the coordinator, so that if you see any tension, you see a lag in conversation or you feel that a question may be taking in the wrong direction, you can step in and steer the conversation back to where it needs to be a positive conversation as opposed to a negative one. And let me restate, I apologize whenever I said negative experience. I should have used a a different words. I guess where that comes from is what we hear a lot in, you know, the OPO world is that from from residents uh, mostly is that they don't get a lot of training in this area. And so, you know, making sure of what we can provide to them or more experienced physicians, what they can provide to them to make it a comfortable atmosphere, you know, despite a potential loss. So that's really where that was geared from. Yes, I I know what you meant. Um, But a lot of that, you can't really, you can't really lecture somebody on how to have a conversation. You can give them examples of, questions families may have, reactions families may have when you broach these topics with them and kind of steer them into how to respond, how not to respond, um, how to initiate conversations, things such as that. But to me, there's nothing better than watching experience, you know, knowing how to, I don't want to say play a a family because that's not it at all, but how to communicate with them. You know, I mean, how to be that person, like I said, I was lucky that I had the opportunity as a fellow to take care of patients who were waiting for cardiac donation, as well as patients who actually had the blessing of getting cardiac donation. And mind you, in those four years that I did that, I had more patients not get the heart that they were waiting for than received one. So you know, having these hard conversations was something that I was fortunate to to learn from from there. I mean, I hated that everybody that I cared for didn't have a successful transplant, but I also learned so much about being there for that patient, being there for that family. I mean, I had I had families that even after a loss of a, a loved one would invite me to a family gathering. You know, you you were part of our family for X number of months while we waited for this. 
we're having a barbecue or, or whatsoever in so-and-so's honor. And we would, we would hope that you would make it. And I did go to those. I did go to them. I, I mean, mean that's a, that says a lot about the person that you are, not just the physician. That says a lot about the person that you are. The other two things that I would say in, in summarizing what you just mentioned was it's such a dual the, the importance in both of those things is one, having that conversation with the family that is dealing with the loss and recognizing that, like I said earlier, and can't even imagine what that conversation is like. So that's on the death side, but then also on the transplant side of knowing that there's, there's so few opportunities, you know, when you're talking about the number of people on the transplant list, and that's why it's so important to work together so that we can support the the family's losing a loved one and supporting those those lives that are in need of a transplant and how, you know, us coming together and having those conversations and education and everything else, you know, is just it plays such a, an impactful role in working together. So absolutely. And that's one of the, the most important roles of the coordinator, because, again, like I said earlier, having the coordinators there to say, wait, before you do that. Do you think that Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Smith, whoever would be a candidate for, you know, are they going to meet brain death criteria? Would they be a candidate for donation? Well, do you think they're, if they don't meet brain death criteria, which is something we talked about two weeks ago on a patient, you know, do you think the family would be interested in DCD? And, and I'll be honest with you, in this particular patient, even I didn't think of this patient as a candidate for DCD because he had so many organ systems down, but the truth is his liver was one thing that wasn't down. They never had any liver dysfunction the entire time the patient was in the hospital. And I was like, you know, I didn't even think about that. I looked at him as an entire package of someone who had so many organ dysfunctions that he wouldn't be a candidate for anything. And yet here you are, and I knew that he, he would not survive the hour. I mean, he would be a perfect DCD candidate. He'd be perfect because there was nothing wrong with this gentleman's liver. So they also point out things that even the most experienced of us don't see sometimes. That is an important thing to point out is because, you know, sometimes there's so many comorbidities, but looking at the overall picture, maybe sometimes there is a gift that can be recovered and given to another. And so... Well, listen, Dr. Greer, there's so much more that we could talk about. I think that we could probably spend a week together. I don't know if you want that with me, but we're going to pick, (laughs) (laughs) but we're going to pick back up in the next episode. So I look forward to talking to you soon. Okay. Thank you, Sean Paul. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. And thank you for being someone that truly cares about organ and tissue donation. It matters. Remember, you can register as an organ, eye, and tissue donor anytime at registerme.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Connected by Life on your favorite podcast app. Remember, you're a light worker. Keep shining. This is a production of LOPA. The content in this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and not intended to substitute for professional medical advice. To read our full disclaimer, please visit our website. The Connected by Life podcast is hosted by myself, Sean Paul Harrison. Our executive producer is Kirsten Heinz. 
Our production assistant is Chandra Williams, and we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez.